Hey, it's Anna Maria Tremonti, and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast. It's called More, and I'll be talking to people you may think you already know until you hear them here. We've got a little more time to explore and to probe and even to play a little. So get ready for the likes of David Suzuki, Catherine O'Hara, Margaret Atwood, and many others. You can find more with Anna Maria Tremonti wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. This season, we've had thought-provoking shows on everything from keto and plant-based diets to a frightening new polio-like disease that affects kids. We even had Alan Alda showing me how he went from his TV doctor gig as Hawkeye Pierce on MASH to teaching real MDs how to communicate with patients. Some shows did more than entertain and inform. They actually moved the needle on important health issues that Canadians care about. This week, the stories that made a difference, beginning with an eye-opening program from last September. Would you mind talking to us for a few minutes? I appreciate you listening. When we first met Michelle DiTomaso in Vancouver, she was walking up to complete strangers to warn women about a common yet surprisingly little-known risk factor for breast cancer. So for the three years that my mammogram had been read... They saw white, and they was told that they saw my age, and they dismissed it as dense when there was actually cancer in there. So what we're trying to do is raise awareness. And Michelle says women need to know because dense breasts are common, because they increase the risk of breast cancer, and because dense breasts make cancers nearly impossible for radiologists to spot on a mammogram. And Michelle's campaign to tell women is personal. She'll never forget the day her oncologist told her she had cancer. On my first appointment with her... She says to me, you've had this in you for three years. I was like, what are you talking about? I've had a mammogram for the past three years. She goes, you have dense breasts. What? I said, I don't even, I don't know what that is. She goes, what had happened was when the radiologist read your mammogram, they saw white. And then they looked at your age and they dismissed it as dense breast tissue. Where there was cancer actually in there. She goes... Dense breast tissue is white, cancer is white. It was a camouflage effect, and they missed it. I said, they missed it for three f-ing years? And she's like, they, it, it happens. Holy crap. You've told me I could now have found this out earlier. It was wrong. It was just so wrong. Dense breasts are common, yet at the time Michelle was diagnosed, no province routinely told women their density, much less what to do about it. Michelle co-founded Dense Breast Canada to lobby for change. After our story first aired, you wrote back in droves. Here's one tweet we received from at Puddle Jump Coach. Thank you for your interview with Dense Breast Canada. Heard it the day after my mammogram and found out I have dense breasts. Got a follow-up ultrasound and found a suspicious mass. Had a biopsy that was benign. So grateful. 
many of you reached out to Dense Breast Canada. We were actually quite overwhelmed with the response. We heard from a lot of women who had breast cancer, who were diagnosed late, and who wished that they had known and been given this information. That's Jenny Dale, who co-founded Dense Breast Canada, along with Michelle DiTomaso. Like Michelle, she's a breast cancer survivor. We spoke last week at her home just north of Toronto. Dale says even health professionals reached out to Dense Breast Canada after hearing our show. We heard from women who had no clue, had never heard about breast density and wanted to help us spread the word. We heard from physicians who weren't aware of the issue and wanted to take action and and help their patients. When the program aired last September, no province was routinely informing women of their breast density. Back then, BC was the only province to inform women, but only if they filled out a form requesting their breast density. Jenny Dale says things changed the moment our show aired. They just took right off. There was a huge ripple effect. Shortly after the show aired, the health minister in British Columbia announced that BC would be informing women of their breast density. and Regardless of whether they asked or not. Regardless of whether they asked or not. And uh, uh, part of that was a result from the show because the screening program was inundated with forms from women wanting to know their breast density. And so he knew it was the right thing to do. And so he announced it about a week after the show. And that had a ripple effect across Canada. We've now seen that uh, the Atlantic provinces uh, have committed to notifying women and they should be implementing that this fall. We've seen uh, three other provinces commit to notifying women in the highest category. We have basically seen all 10 provinces make progress on the issue. It's quite a a, a cascading effect. Um, What does it mean for women across Canada now that most provinces are making it easier for them to find out if they have dense breasts? Well, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's, it's so important that women know their breast density because it is a significant risk factor for breast cancer. They can be aware that they need to be, if they have dense breasts, they can be more vigilant about breast self-exam. They can be aware that their mammogram isn't necessarily enough and they could possibly seek supplemental screening. They can take action to mitigate risk factors uh, such as, you know, weight, exercise, Uh, alcohol, hormone replacement. So having this information doesn't cure cancer, but uh, potentially if you're going to get cancer, and hopefully not, but to find cancer early. And that's our goal, early detection, because we know that the earlier you find cancer, the better your chance of survival. Are there any provinces that uh, need to do more? We still have work to do in uh, particularly Ontario And in Newfoundland and Manitoba, these provinces are only informing women with the highest category of density. And so they are ignoring a significant amount of the population that has dense breasts. Uh, Women with over 50% density, they're only informing women with over 75%. So we are advocating and they are listening. We are having meetings with the leadership in the provinces and they're being responsive. So we're hoping to see all provinces implement breast density notification soon. What about at the federal level? There's a federal election later this year. What can the federal government do to help move things forward? We're also advocating on the federal level, and there have been discussions with the health minister. So what action is Dense Breast Canada doing now to to try to 
change the conversation at the federal level? Well, in the United States, the FDA is mandating that all the states inform women of their breast density. Right now, there's 37 states that are informing women. They have legislation. But the FDA wants every woman in the United States to know their breast density. And we can do the same thing. I mean, we don't have to wait for province by province to inform women. The federal government can mandate that all women in Canada are informed of their breast density. And it can listen to expert advice. Have you had any conversations with anybody uh, at a high level? We certainly have. We've, been, we've had numerous conversations with the leadership of Public Health Agency of Canada. And there have been ongoing conversations with staff in the health minister's office. And our medical director recently spoke to the health minister herself. It's a moral obligation on the part of our governments, ethical, uh, that women are given the information that can potentially save their lives. You're an insider. You've got a stake in this. Why do you think the story of women with dense breasts who get cancer has connected so much with Canadians? Because it's a tragic story. Most women with dense breasts who get cancer have cancer found late in a more advanced stage. And, you know, this is more than mortality. It impacts them psychologically. It impacts the entire family. It impacts them financially. Uh, you know, they have to have mastectomies versus lumpectomies, higher risk of lymphedema, much more aggressive treatment. It's a very sad situation that women are put into. And if women had this information, then we could avoid some of those things. Well, you're going to keep fighting on? Definitely. We are going to keep fighting on. As we complete the advocacy for breast density notification, we're going to be advocating for screening ultrasound for women with dense breasts, at least women in the highest category. And we're going to try and advocate on the federal level that our breast cancer screening guidelines are revisited. Good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for all you've done. We'll update that story as developments unfold. And one more thing. Our show on the hidden risk of dense breasts is a finalist in the health and medicine category at the 2019 New York Festival's Radio Awards. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, we're checking back on stories that made a difference. Few would argue that we need better palliative care in Canada. The need is even more acute when the patient is an adult with developmental challenges. Last December, we told you about Tristan Lederman, who died at home at the age of 34. Tristan was born with cerebral palsy and developmental delay and was often hospitalized for seizures and other problems. His parents, Mark and Jennifer, installed an elevator and made other changes so they could care for their son at home. Adults with exceptional needs like Tristan seldom make it to middle age. And at the beginning of 2017, his health deteriorated drastically. Mark and Jennifer asked for palliative care. As Mark told us last December, the doctors seemed unprepared to care for an adult with exceptional needs who cannot speak. We put to them... Is Tristan possibly in a dying stage? The doctors would not answer that question. We said, our goal is to maximize the pain killing. Will you accede to the substitute decision maker's wishes, that's Jennifer and I, to say that we want more for Tristan to ease his pain? Unfortunately, the doctors would not answer that question either. Tristan also had a heavy mucus buildup. It was, it was really awful. I was literally taking my hand with a washcloth and, and 
pushing my hand down Tristan's throat and pulling out gobs and gobs of mucus so he could breathe. And we said, this can't go on. There has to be something better. One of the palliative care doctors said, well, I don't know what else you could do. It wasn't until we had a um, caregiver's sister who is a, a registered nurse with one of the large hospitals say to us, there's something called a suction machine. You get the suction machine from them and you ask for it. And it wasn't until we actually did that that they said, oh yeah, you can get the suction machine. They were just not reacting properly to requests we think are simple. Jennifer and Mark Lederman are convinced that Tristan died with pain and other symptoms that could have been palliated. Following his death, they met with Tristan's doctors, and a complaint to the College of Physicians and Surgeons has yet to be resolved. They also sent letters to Ontario Premier Doug Ford and to the Minister of Health and Long-Term Care, Christine Elliott, but had not received replies. That changed shortly after our program aired in December. Here's an excerpt from an email we received recently from Mark and Jennifer. Whether by coincidence or not, approximately two days after the final airing of the episode, we were delighted and pleasantly surprised to be contacted by a representative of the Ontario Minister of Health and Long-Term Care. The purpose of the contact was to schedule a long-requested in-person meeting to discuss palliative care. The meeting with the minister and two members of her senior staff took place in March. From our perspective, it went well. We were afforded enough time to get all of our concerns out on the table with suggested recommendations based on our experience and input from people who had commented on your webpage, as well as input from friends and acquaintances with whom we had spoken. The minister seemed interested in what we had to say, and the meeting concluded with her stating that there would be follow-up with us at a later date. That was from Mark and Jennifer, who added that an impartial review of the palliative care received by Tristan is ongoing. They concluded by saying, We're grateful for the opportunity you afforded us in telling Tristan's story and our undertaking to try to ensure that Canadians who wish to die at home, especially those who are disabled, may have that ability without having to suffer unnecessarily and with the proper funding and resources in place to allow for the fulfillment of their wishes. That was from Mark and Jennifer Lederman. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, we look back at stories that made a difference to patients, to loved ones, and, as you'll see in our next story, to the way doctors and hospitals operate during a crisis. On October 1, 2017, Stephen Paddock opened fire on a group of people attending the Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas. 59 people were killed and hundreds wounded, making it the deadliest mass casualty incident by one person in U.S. history. In a matter of hours, 212 of the wounded, as many trauma cases as some hospitals see in an entire year, were taken to Sunrise Hospital. An ER physician named Kevin Menace was on duty. As I would circle around the ER looking for patients that are going to start crashing on me, um, if I would see a doctor who would come in, I would uh, grab him, tell him all the sort of workarounds that we had been doing. And then I told him, you know, you're, you're a shark. Get out there and find blood. And the funny thing is after every time I would say that, you would see this, that look of shock, horror, confusion, sort of melt away 
that look that ER doctors get when they're ready to work uh, would come over their face, and then they would go. And at that point, they knew they needed to find these patients who were bleeding and dying. As the surgeons came coming in, uh, they would um, go up to the trauma surgeon, and he would hand them cases to take back and do the damage control surgeries on. It would just go back and forth, back and forth, and that's what we did that night until we saved everybody that uh, we saved that night. Sunrise saved all but 16 of the 212 patients that night in part because the hospital had a secret weapon. Kevin Menace, the ER doc on duty, just happens to be a gun owner who studies ballistics in mass casualty incidents and is a tactical physician with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department SWAT team. The night of the Las Vegas shooting, hundreds arrived by the carload, so Menace threw out the rule book based on the usual one or a handful of trauma patients at a time and created a brand new triage method on the fly. That night, instead of just black tagging people or gray tagging them, I sort of lumped the blacks, the grays, and the reds into one. I sat down and I actually calculated about how much time I had per patient to triage them. I had about a little over 10 seconds to triage <gasps> these patients. 10 seconds to decide so, if they were if they were worth going full board to try to save them or not. Yeah, uh, 10 seconds to look at them, use my ballistic calculations and stuff that I had learned, make a decision on are these people going to die now if I don't do something about it? Die maybe in the next 20 to 30 minutes, you know, die within an hour or they probably won't die. I sort of lumped those three categories into one because those gray tags I know can be saved. And that night we did save a huge majority of these gray tags who, um, who did come in. Um, the black tags, you know, unfortunately, they, uh, these patients were very uh, unsalvageable, and a lot of them came in with no pulse. But instead of pronouncing them dead, I figured that if I sent them back to the ER and another doctor saw them, you know, I could sleep comfortably the rest of my life knowing that I didn't uh, doom somebody to die that could have been saved. Last month, that show won the Radio Television Digital News Association's Dave Rogers Award for Long Feature Radio Stories. Our show also got the attention of emergency physicians who've invited Dr. Menace to teach them the innovative methods he used that night. There are shows that made a difference because they helped transform the system. And there are shows that made a difference because they helped transform the person. I have to apologize to you, dear body. I left you vulnerable. I let you get hurt. Remember the ice? The sound of an edge moving inside out? Your coach prompting you to jump higher, tighter, faster? How many times you slammed onto the cold surface. Remember the smell of Zamboni gasoline? How much you loved the morning ice. It was so fast and so clear. That's Alberta writer Amy Willens reading from a poem she wrote titled Dear Body. It begins with wistful nostalgia for the days when she was a champion precision skater and nursing student. At age 22, Amy had her first psychotic break. She was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and spent much of her 20s and 30s as an involuntary psychiatric patient at hospitals in Alberta and Ontario. 
And the thing about depression is that it can be so insidious. And so it started with like this intense lack of interest in things. And I remember sitting on my couch and I was looking at the front door and I was thinking, I have to get up and out the door to practice. But it just took everything I had to just wipe my hair from my face, you know? It it yelled in my ear that I was nothing, that I was no one. I stopped eating. I stopped showering. I felt guilty, worthless. And at the same time, I began to believe that I was being watched and followed. So I would do things like drive in circles, afraid to stop because I thought the cars behind me were coming to get me. I started to have these delusions that I was pregnant when I wasn't. I also did things like uh, phone the police over and over and over to report that my house was being watched and that my mail was being stolen. I was so paranoid. It took years, but Amy began to feel better and started putting her thoughts into poems. Remember that lover, the quiet one? How he told you you were loved, then kissed your forehead? Remember your thoughts of him, the impossible distance, his warm, gentle breath, oh, how it ached when it ended. A nurse who also writes encouraged Amy to become a writer herself. When she got out of hospital, Amy did that and a whole lot more. She became Alberta's first peer support worker for patients with mental health challenges, And in 2015, she received an award for her role in bringing peer support to the mental health field. You remember all the plans for all the endings, that pull and pull and pull of death, how you faded away into the hallway, how you couldn't seem to say a word. Since our show about Amy aired in November 2018, she's gotten a lot more comfortable talking publicly about her own mental illness. For so many years... I was afraid to say a word about my illness, wrote Amy in an email. I was defeated by shame. But I slowly began to release my story bit by bit. When the opportunity to be interviewed on White Coat Black Art came, I was terrified. But I did it. And as I waited for it to air, I was even more terrified. I feared that I'd be called crazy and ridiculed. But I made a decision to just be as open and honest as I could be. I was determined to share my struggles and successes. I felt very strongly that the discussion is important. I've learned that when we stand in our truth, when we give it breath, when we say, this is the real me, we connect deeply with each other. This acceptance is so healing. We all struggle. It's when we are seen and heard and acknowledged that true mending can take place. We are much more similar than we are different. So thank you for hearing me and seeing me. The heavy cloak of shame I've worn for so many years feels much lighter. My gratitude feels deep and full. What an honor it's been to share my story. That was from Amy Willens. And telling her story on the radio has also raised her profile with patients and with health professionals. I didn't know my voice could reach so many people, Amy wrote. I never expected to be offered so many opportunities. So many heartfelt connections and stories have been shared. I've heard from doctors and nurses, from mothers, fathers, daughters and sons, from students at Stanford University, from a farmer in Saskatchewan, a medical journal out of Melbourne, Australia. I've been invited to speak at universities and high schools and conferences. I've been hired to write articles and poems. I've been asked to consult on government projects. 
I've recently received two advocacy awards for using my story to educate and inform the public. Wow. What a journey. But here I am, banged up and bruised. And what I can promise you is this. You will get hurt, but you will heal like water into steam. Sometimes you'll be lonely, sometimes you'll long for solitude, but perhaps we can find the beauty in the smell of the cherry blossoms, the short chirp of the bird, the rain left on the newly green leaves. Amy says she wrote the poem Dear Body in recognition of healing and the wisdom that life can be so cruel, yet so beautiful. And when you climb up the steep bank near the end of your walk, there's a bench, a quiet one. Sit for a minute. Thank the sky for sun. Thank the grass for braving this harsh prairie. Thank the rock and the silt. Listen for the pull of the river current, how resilient its underbelly. Let your breath settle. Let every bit of your skin feel every bit of touch. Hold the wind just for a moment. Remember, there is so much that longs to be held. Dear one, fall in love again. Remember hope with all her soft blessings. Remember dream and possibility. Remember doctors and nurses for the kindnesses. Forgive the cruelties. You can't hold hurt forever. Remember, it's no longer just about survival. So touch the sand and sky. Watch the geese and the goslings. There's so much beauty. Have patience. Healing takes time. We have Amy's full poem, Dear Body, up on our website at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. That's our show for this week and our final original program of the season. To learn more about the stories that made a difference and the people behind those shows, visit cbc.ca slash whitecoat. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC White Coat. We're also on Facebook. To listen anytime, download the CBC Radio app or the Radio Player Canada app. Or subscribe to our show at subscriptions.cbc.ca on iTunes or wherever you obtain your podcasts. And if you're looking for the latest in health news and analysis, subscribe to Second Opinion at subscriptions.cbc.ca. Finally, I'd like to extend a huge shout-out to the amazing team of producers without whom this show would not be possible. A huge thank you to producers Jeff Goods and Sujata Berry, plus digital producers and writers Ruby Buiza and Jonathan Orr. An extra special thanks goes to senior producer Donna Dingwall, who keeps the trains running on time while making the show a treat to work on and to listen to. And thanks to all of you for your support, your ideas, and your willingness to tell your stories and help us make a difference. Beginning next week, we'll be airing some of the best stories from this season while the team catches a breather and starts working on stories for next season. We can't wait. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Sujata Berry and Jeff Goods with help from digital producer Ruby Buiza. Our senior producer is Donna Dingwall. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.